What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. I want just to begin by very quickly sketching in four momentous developments in culture, as I see it, over about the last hundred years. It won't take as long as that makes it sound, yes, but it will. The first is, in the early 20th century, something very dramatic happens to culture, namely, it becomes for the first time, really, a full-blooded industry. Yes, the so-called culture industry, as people like Adorno will later call it, takes off, gets off the ground. In other words, culture really, for the first time in a very big way, becomes part of commodity production in general. Yes? Now, second momentous development, which is really in line with this and extends it, several decades later, perhaps in the 1970s, the era of so-called postmodernism, now not only is culture itself a huge industry, enormously profitable, but other industries, other parts of society begin increasingly to assimilate and integrate it, become, as it were, culturalised or aestheticised in style, design, packaging, advertising, public relations and so on. What happens then is an intensifying integration of culture and other kinds of social practice which has the advantage, you might say, that it brings culture down to earth from its rather rarefied status uh, otherwise, but has the distinct disadvantage that it means that culture gradually ceases to operate as critique. That one of the great traditional humanistic functions of culture was, as it were, to open up some daylight between itself and the rest of our social practices and institutions so that it could actually operate as a critique of them. That distance, as it increasingly narrows between culture and society, if you like, means that critique is, is, is increasingly muted and blunted. And that happens just in our own period at the same time as another dramatic event, a historic event, which is that the universities finally more or less cease to be centres of humane critique and capitulate almost without a struggle, to the priorities of late capitalism. Those two things, the integration of culture, the culture ceasing to be a critique, and the universities increasingly capitulating these priorities, I think can be seen together. I was 
about a year ago being shown around what I was told was the greatest, the biggest anyway, if not greatest, university in South Asia by the president who was proudly pointing out his business school and managerial courses and so on. And I said, um, there doesn't seem to be anything critical here. And he looked at me as though I'd said, you know, where, where are the PhDs on pole dancing? And he said, your comment will be noted rather stiffly. <laughs> took out some small technological gadget, spoke two words into it, probably, you know, kill him. <laughs> Closed it and put it away, right? The third momentous d development, uh, which I think Roger in particular may want to engage with, is uh, when culture ceases to be an attempt, a surrogate for religion, yes? You can write the history of modernity among other things, in terms of a whole series of botched attempts by various things, the nation, the state, culture, and so on, to stand in for a failing religion. Culture was, in a way, a very plausible candidate, both culture in the narrow artistic sense and culture in the broader way of life, anthropological sense. What happens over the 20th century, I think, is that this becomes less and less plausible. The idea that the arts will save us, which in some ways is a theme of modernism, a theme of high modernism, is, is as it were, gradually discredited. Um, there is an excellent book, actually not yet published, about to be published on this theme, full of brilliant insights called Culture and the Death of God, uh, written by me. Um, <laughs> Uh, which looks at this whole... Uh, that, that, uh, in a, a rather dramatic way, culture made a bid for power, a bid, as it were, to oust God, to oust theology and religion. And that, you know, wasn't a stupid idea because culture is concerned with deep fundamental values, if you like, with a kind of transcendence, as well as with everyday practices like religion. It was in some ways a very plausible candidate to replace religion, but it didn't work for all kinds of reasons. The fourth dramatic development over that century, I think, is this, that um, at a certain, let me put it this way, at a certain point, culture ceased to be part of the solution and became part of the problem. What I mean by that is that one rather generous-minded but somewhat hopelessly idealist version of culture had seen culture as the common ground on which we could all meet in our fundamental shared humanity, regardless of our rather trivial dis differences of gender, nationality, ethnicity, class, and so on. That was a rather abstract concept, and you needed to concretize it. You needed something you could, as it were, hold in your hand and say, this crystallizes, this distills those deep shared values. And the name of that was literature. Literature was a marvellously portable way, so to speak, of carrying this deep consensus of values around you. That was, in, in many ways, a very generous-minded and progressive idea in its time. What happens from the mid-20th century onwards is that that, too, becomes increasingly unviable. And the reason for that, I think, is this. The greatest, the most wildly successful revolutionary movement of the modern period was revolutionary nationalism which in the mid-decades, particularly of the 20th century, transfigured the earth, yes? For revolutionary nationalism and for the various kinds of identity politics, so-called, that came after it, culture was now, as it were, part of the problem, not part of the solution. 
Culture in the sense of, in the broad sense of identity, language, symbol, daily practice, kinship, tradition, affiliation, community, all of these things were now politically problematic. Yes, they were the very language of conflict and contention, whereas culture traditionally, sometimes I think rather spuriously, had been an attempt to paper over those cracks and say, well, those, those divisions are not really as important as our shared humanity. It's, what happened then was that culture became, as it were, the very language in which political demands were framed and articulated. Culture and politics became much closer together, and that meant that culture could no longer, as it were, take the high ground in relation to a politics which it had always been rather rather disdainful of, or rather suspicious of. In a word, and forgive me if you've heard me say this before, culture was now, and is for us today, what people are ready to kill for. Or, if you like, to die for. You know, nobody, as far as I know, is prepared to kill for the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. You know, maybe a few seriously weird people hanging around in caves somewhere. You know, But they are most certainly prepared to kill for questions of religion, identity, community, ethnicity, lineage, and so on. Yes? That now, I think, is what has happened in the long trek from the beginning of the 20th century to the present. Culture is what people are prepared to kill for, and on that suitably sombre note, I will hand you over to Roger Scruton, who will probably depress you even more. <laughs> Well, that was a, an extremely interesting survey of a particular view of what culture is and what it can do for us. I want to slightly change the focus towards thinking about how we actually would try to teach culture in the age in which we find ourselves and why it might still be important. Uh, Terry has said some very important things, in fact, about the history of the culture industry in, our, in, in the last century. And uh, I can't say that I disagree with everything that he says, uh, although I think there's one very important remark that he makes which I would fundamentally disagree with, which is that his uh, remark that the universities have capitulated to capitalism. Um, as the, a unique defender of capitalism in my university, for which I um, was never rewarded, I can only say that that's the opposite of the truth. It, um, the, where I taught in London University, everybody in the humanities departments and social sciences had capitulated to socialism. Uh, many of them under the influence of Terry Eagleton. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I, I'm, uh, but I, this put in me in mind uh, of a very important question, which is not only what is culture, but why should we teach it now, and how can we teach it? Uh, and uh, this is very important for people in the humanities, because that's how we defined our subjects. You know, uh, Terry uh, taught and still teaches literature, which is, I, I, guess, I guess, a part of culture. I teach philosophy, in particular those aspects of philosophy that border on the, on the arts. And um, there is no point in teaching them if I don't think that there is something to be learned here. And what I think of uh, there is to be learned is precisely that, culture. But what is it? 
uh, I think there are two contrasting views, one which I defend and one which I think Terry has defended in his uh, writings over the years. I would say that culture, as we teach it in universities, is or, in, or aspires to be a form of wisdom that is to be imparted to people. That's to say something which contains elements of knowledge which they wouldn't otherwise acquire uh, and which is imparted in its own particular way, not as the sciences are, but in another way. And it's that other way which is difficult to define. But there, is, there are those who teach in universities, in humanities departments, who see culture as something quite different. They see it as part of the ideology of the ruling class or the ideology of a particular social order. And the purpose of teaching it is not to impart it, but on the contrary, to undermine it or to expose the, the powers that secretly advance behind it. And I think that's the second, that second approach is what started what I think of as the culture wars. Um, the wars between those people who regarded their role as, uh, as um, teachers of culture in the, as, as one of imparting a form of wisdom, a form of, uh, of knowledge that would be of, uh, not only useful to the student but part of the continuity of the social order to which the student belongs, and those who see their primary duty as one of uh, debunking, deconstructing, or, or showing the structures of domination, to use the Foucauldian idiom, that lie behind our ways of thinking, uh, our ways of speaking, and our ways of enjoying the art and, uh, and music and so on of our civilization. The origin of that second view, the debunking view, is, I think, Marxists, the Marxist theory of ideology, which became prominent uh, uh, not at the time that Marx wrote, but much later uh, in the uh, Frankfurt School in Germany uh, and uh, between the wars, and, it, of course, in France of 1968 under the influence of people like Foucault. Uh, and I, th I see um, the, Terry Eagleton's approach in his earlier writings, at least, as part of that, a particularly, I have to say, a particularly intelligent manifestation of it, I'm afraid, so I can't easily triumph over it. But nevertheless, um, I do think that it's very important to reaffirm another vision of culture as something not only worth imparting, but also as containing knowledge. The kind of knowledge that it contains is not like scientific knowledge, a collection of facts and theories. And when people start thinking of, of culture in terms of theory, uh, it's largely because they're taking the, the Marxist approach the, the, uh, of, of um, debunking it through finding the explanation of it. I think of culture as a form of practical knowledge, something which gives you a sense of uh, what to do, what to feel, how to, how to be towards other people in, in a community, uh, in ways which will enhance your own social and, uh, and emotional competence. I think this is what you learn from literature, uh, and I, I think in particular you learn it from music. And if I've got just another minute or two, I'd like to mention this aspect of culture because it's so often overlooked. Uh, I, the greatest achievement of our civilization, uh, if you leave religion and science to one side, has been music. Uh, a, a continuous tradition of, uh, of reflection through the articulate sound on what it is to be human uh, and a constant attempt to take that reflection further, to build abstract structures in which nevertheless we see mirrored our own 
uh, emotional nature uh, as rational and, and social beings. And I think this, is one of the, this great achievement is something which I think can be imparted to the young and it changes the, their lives. It changes their way not only of thinking about the world but of seeing each other. Uh, that, that no, nothing can be done to enhance this acculturation by uh, giving a Marxist theory of where it all came from. Here is something where you, which you impart by, get, by encouraging young people to love it, to love it and to find reflected in it all that is best in themselves. And that, I think, is what a, a real cultural education should be, imparting that kind of self-knowing and reflective conception of why, uh, why one is the sort of thing one is and how to find it mirrored in the world around you. That's it. Thank you both very much for that. Terry, would you like to come back to Roger on some of yeah, these points? Can I sit somewhere where I could see him? Of course, we yeah. Right, yeah, thank you. Um, yes, actually, actually some, some of that I surprisingly agree with. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think there was a period particularly perhaps the 1970s and 1980s, when the left was too negative, deconstructive in the bad, in the negative sense, uh, um, and not sufficiently affirmative about culture. But I, you see, I think that there's also a very important leftist tradition of that affirmation. You mentioned the Frankfurt School there, Roger, but as it were in connection purely with dismantling and mm. structures of domination. Frankfurt School, of course, also has a very positive tradition of utopian thought about culture. And so, I think, has the left had the left in general. I mean, Fred Jameson, the greatest, I think, Marxist critic in, in, in the States, certainly, is very much concerned with that. There was a, and, and what part of the problem, I think, for me, is to get those two approaches in some sort of reasonable alignment. I don't... I mean, of course, what I, I, don't, I don't agree that, that Marxism or the left has been debunking, nor actually do I... I mean, that that's the point, that that is something to be, to be approved of, nor actually do I think that deconstruction is purely negative. That's a rather if I may say so, cliched view of it. And Derrida himself always insisted that, uh, or as he used to say, you have to be a Parisian to say this, deconstruction says yes. Um, uh, and um, a man who actually on his deathbed left a note read by his son at his funeral saying that life must be affirmed and asking his friends to smile upon him as he was smiling upon them. This was not, this was not, these were not the words of a nihilist or a debunker, as those who disgracefully tried to refuse him an honorary degree at the University of Cambridge seem to think. Um, uh, so I'm afraid, I mean, in a sense, Roger, I think that your own distinction between culture as a kind of wisdom and culture as an explanation of context is something that, for me, can be deconstructed. Mm. I don't think it's an. I don't think it's an absolute polarity. I believe in my own way that that, that culture can convey a kind of wisdom, and that that's why people go to it. But I don't think that wisdom is timeless, and I don't think that wisdom is to be uncriticised. And I think that it exists in a historical context, and I think you can do all that 
without the worst kind of negativity and debunkery. That's it. Yes, uh, there is truth in what you say. Uh, I have to say, though, that um, it, leaving it to your deathbed to say that life should be affirmed is leaving it rather late. <laughs> <laughs> he could have he taken a bit of action earlier. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's always like... Uh, especially if he'd uh, bothered to look at the effect he was having on others. Because, uh, I think that my own... My own sense of this, you're absolutely right that, that, that you know, I can get into a whole world of clichés talking about deconstruction and what it meant, um, but I still think one must hold on to this uh, distinction between, between culture as, as a form of knowledge uh, and uh, the theory of culture as, a, as a, a kind of scientific way of distancing oneself from that knowledge. And I, I think this relates to something you yourself said, uh, when you, um, I think, quite rightly said at a certain stage, culture had been thought of as a religion surrogate, and then gradually it, it, it failed to fulfil that role, and people, um, therefore, uh, therefore, it lost some of its credibility, some of it, the reason why we would be teaching it. I think there is truth in that, but nevertheless, that culture, in, at least in the forms in which we, um, we are talking about it, has this in common with religion, that it is offering membership in some way. I think this is a very important feature of it. Uh, science, I don't think, does offer membership. It offers a sort of factual knowledge about the world, but it doesn't say, you belong with this. Whereas um, part of, uh, of deconstructing what you say about the historical and context dependence of, of culture is to say yes it's like that because it's it's telling you some here is something that you can belong to and i think um there are there are forms of knowledge that only come about through belonging that that's why i wanted to refer to music mm. Mm. yes I'm, I'm a bit doubtful that scientists wouldn't see themselves as belonging right I mean, mm. I would i mean speaking as a total outsider you know but observing them like some strange nocturnal creature like that. Um, that they, you know, I mean the scientists have a powerful sense, often a rather clannish sense of community for example they work together in ways that people in the humanity often don't, mm. they practically physically work together, I did some work in theatre in my younger days and it seemed to me rather like the, hum the humanist equivalent of the laboratory, it's practical, it's collective, it's changeable and so on um, belonging is, is important, and I think it not least because there's been a somewhat callow cult of the outsider and exile and migrant, as though the truth or wisdom only lies with that. Some post-colonial have been responsible for that. Uh, everybody needs to belong, and there's nothing wrong with, with roots. Um, nor, in my view, speaking as a leftist, is there anything wrong with tradition. One thing that we vitally belong to, as you well know and have written, is, is a tradition. It's just that I think it's been rather arrogantly assumed that tradition, you know, is one thing. But the left has its traditions. You know, the suffragettes, the chartists are a tradition. But whenever tradition gets talked about on the right, it's as though it's basically about the House of Lords and the changing of the guard. You know, our traditions are pushed to the edge. And, you know, somebody once said, um, we leftists have always lived in tradition. His name was Leon Trotsky. You know. Well, um, 
Yes, it's easy to say that because, you know, if you say we leftists have always done this or this is, this is how we think on the left, um, you know that you're all automatically asserting membership of a, a well-established community. If I said we rightists, immediately, even if I didn't finish the sentence, you know, I'd be in trouble. Uh, because I'm, you know, it's not a permissible form of, uh, of community. So you're, you're able to lean on this precisely because you've taken refuge in the kind of things, a kind of community which I would think shouldn't exist in the first place. Uh, but, um, One, what, I mean, I want to go back actually, Roger, to your point that I really do want to take issue with, which is the point about universities. Mm. I think that's perhaps the most important issue facing us this evening or, or generally. Um, now, it's true, uh, it's true that a lot of people in universities have been valiantly resisting the kinds of directions they've been taken. If that's what you mean by saying you find a lot of hairy lefties in universities, then yes, and in my view, quite a good thing. But what they are resist... But, but you also, Roger, speak as though you haven't seen the inside of universities since the 1970s. Really? I, no, exactly. <laughs> um, I know he hasn't. Um, and, 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 and therefore haven't experienced what any, not only junior, but you know, even senior academics, just the whole soul-destroying managerialization of universities. Yes, I, I totally accept that. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, uh, I mean, being managerialized by socialists is even worse than being managerialized <laughs> by capitalists. But um, it's, it's the left that, stu- that stood up for the universities mm. as a humane critique of social priorities. It's mm. the left that has tried to keep those traditions alive well, as against the cynicism of neo-capitalists. You you, let's assume that there's some truth in what you say. Uh, I, I have to say, uh, I, I do have a conception that, uh, that universities have legitimate things that they should be doing, uh, one of it, which is imparting culture. Uh, and there are other things which they do do now more and, uh, more, and more which they shouldn't be doing, like uh, teaching people business studies and other technological uh, forms of education. And that is entirely true. It's entirely true that comes about because of the influence of the surrounding economic order. I don't doubt that. But the question is still what is taught in those areas, those areas where uh, only a university can do it, like the imparting of high culture. Yeah. There is where, that, that's what I was really referring to. Yeah. That is where I have felt that my vision has been um, radically marginalised and the subject matter confiscated uh, and um, I think it's, it's important to say this and also to emphasise that uh, you know, your reference to tradition is absolutely right but um, tradition isn't just about changing the guard and, and Scottish country dancing and the sort of things that Hobsbawm mocks it's, uh, it's about things like the, the unbroken development of the common law down a thousand years uh, or the rise of the western orchestra uh, the, the history of tonality from plain song uh, to wagner etc these are huge things which have shaped us as the things that we are uh, we're, we're in danger of uh, agreeing to actually I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, you didn't come along to see some you know this is what always co- happens when i talk co- people up. say to me i'm in danger of agreeing with you <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
But I do, but I do think, you see, the, the area of agreement is very interesting, isn't it? Because you just said, Roger, I, I know that you believe this, that you also don't, uh, feel very uncomfortable about the, pre- the preeminence of business schools and mm. managerialism within, and you have a traditional, as it were, humanistic, conservative conception of universities, with which that jars just as much as it jars with me. There is a certain sense in which a certain kind of rightist, like you, not any old rightist, you know, um, mm. uh, links arms in that respect with a certain kind of unreconstructed old leftist, you know, mm. not a thousand years from me. Um, I didn't like Margaret Thatcher, and neither did you. Oh, uh, well, compared yeah. with all the alternatives, <laughs> sorry, I did. Sorry. <laughs> she was, uh, you know, well, you, you dismissed her as a market liberal, which is true. She didn't right. see her as a true Tory. No, that's yeah. true. Yeah, but well, uh, yeah. I've grown up since then. But... The, but, but <laughs> She hasn't. But, the, but I think the, 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 given that kind of... That, given that there's a long tradition of a certain kind of... a certain kind of conservatism and a certain mm. kind of leftism, both hitting, as it were, a mainstream bourgeois, capitalist, whatever you like to call it, establishment, that, the question that then arises for me is this. Right? And this, for me, is a fundamental question in addressing people of your, of your position. Given that you have that sort of distaste for those activities, given that you equally have a distaste for the coarsening and cheapening of cultural life, you nevertheless remain firmly committed to the very economic and political system which, in my view, is largely responsible for that cheapening and diluting Mm. and sensationalising and vulgarising of culture. That's what I really don't understand. Well, that's a very good... um point to make and I would respond in the following way that this cheapening and commodification (laughs) of culture that you rightly criticise is to be observed everywhere and was to be observed just as much in the so-called socialist states that prevailed in Eastern Europe in my youth and in your youth uh, it doesn't seem to have been resisted in anywhere, anywhere by any political action, partly because I think it, it isn't in itself simply the result of, of any political decision. It's something that has come about in, in, entirely because of prosperity, because of uh, uh, the ways in which people can make easily available the cheaper forms of entertainment without there being any authority to criticise them. Uh, and in your view, I mean, if, if you were in charge, I suspect it would be a bit more... Uh, it, you would go back a little bit more towards the Catholic Inquisition about all this, uh, uh, actually examining cultural products and saying, you know, which should we, which should, which should we allow that's to... Right. Everybody exist? would have to read Brecht three times a day. Yes, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, um, uh, no, no I, I, Roger, I, as you know, I'm no defender of the cultural policies of the Soviet Union. I've spent mm. most of my life fighting for Stalinism. In, yeah, but the in problem is, what is the forms. alternative? Well, we we me, agree okay. that, that, that there's a problem. Well, I, I don't think we agree on the definition of the problem. I spent most of my life fighting Stalinism in political terms and also in cultural ones, but I don't agree that the uh, problems of culture under Stalinism are anything like the problems of culture under uh, market society. They're no better. They may well be worse. Mm. You know, if you have an authoritarian state telling artists what to write, otherwise they're carted away to prison. Sure, that's actually worse 
than you know the dumbing down of culture under late mm. capitalism. All I'm saying is there, we, one has to diagnose two different conditions here, and the condition and what I don't understand about your position is that the specific forms of vulgarization of culture which exist under capitalism you rightly deplore and you support the very framework which generates them. I, well, I, I'm not known for, for advocating uh, economic theories. Uh, I, I suspect that I would, uh, I would support whatever is necessary by way of uh, economic activity for there to be universities in the first place. But I would agree with your position that universities should be, especially in the humanities, uh, critical vis-a-vis the surrounding order. That is, that is the function of culture. And I think uh, you said that this has ceased to be in some way, but I think it's ceased to be largely because people in universities and in schools have neglected that, that function of, uh, of culture, that it, in, it should inject into the ordinary way of thinking uh, the, those critical ideas which enable people to distance themselves from you know, the obvious temptations of economic life. But I think, I think the distancing is part of the problem here. Um, the way culture and the humanities were actually set up historically, the way we, if you like, the origin, the modern origin of the humanities or of culture, was in that necessary distancing from themselves from an increasingly industrial society. So that values which were really dysfunctional in that society were increasingly, as it were, expelled and had to be preserved somewhere else. You had to have an enclave which actually preserved these values. You call it the arts or the humanities or university or culture, it doesn't matter. The problem, however, and I think this is, you see that side of it, Roger, and you applaud it, and so do I, but I see another side too. That distance is also crippling. Mm. That distance, which is necessary, as it were, to preserve those values in some utopian or residual way, also means it's impossible to bring them actively to bear. But how would on you close life. the distance well, without the, the apparatus of censorship? You and I both uh, were at the same college in Cambridge and knew each other and knew um, uh, Raymond Williams, who was my who was my mentor, if you like. Now, when Williams talks about the culture and society tradition, he is indeed talking about figures who want to preserve certain kinds of value from the depredations of industrial capitalism all the way from you know, almost Burke to Lawrence. But he's also talking, not least in the, in the case of people like William Morris and to some extent Wilde, yeah. about people. The point where that tradition, become, as it were, is hard, sees that the only way forward is to try to link these values to a political movement. Now, that's where, of course, you will pull back because... A typically conservative view is that culture is one thing and politics is another. If that is the case, I'm afraid there's no way of bringing these values to bear on everyday social practices. That's my problem with this position. Well, uh, if you think that, uh, um, then you still have to say what kind of political order would enable these conservatives, these... these, um, Uh, cultural values to permeate once again the the everyday life of ordinary people and uh, you know all attempts to make this happen have come have come a cropper for some of the reasons that you say identity politics ends by vulgarizing culture and making it impossible for it to to um assume a critical stance one reason i i've said this before forgive me if you heard it one reason why i'm a marxist quite apart from just you know enjoying annoying people 
is that um, I don't like to do any work. You know, I, I don't really like working. Uh, Marx's answer to the question you're posing, Roger, surely, is that one of the reasons why people's lives are cultureless or filled with a mm. phony, a bogus kind of culture is because, you know, we extraordinarily, at this late point in human history, have to invest as much energy in labour or in making profit because of the nature of our system that there are simply no energies left. Marx is all about leisure and culture and not about labour, but he thinks that we have to change the system which absorbs so much of our energies there if we're to free those energies. And that's a very respectable kind of William Morris, Oscar Wilde, Marx, they all believe in that. Yes, now, that's but, not a programme. That's not mm, a programme, I agree. But, but uh, I, I would, I would uh, hesitate to accept that because uh, it seems to me that the degradation of, of our culture, that which at least we would agree is de- degraded, has come about through increase in, in leisure. Look at television. It's a leisure industry. It's a leisure product for everybody. It's, it's what they go and sit down in front of it. Uh, and it has just declined consistently since, it, since the beginning, uh, partly because it doesn't have to make any effort. Uh, and look at the decline in, 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 in popular music from folk music of the 19th century down to today. The folk music of the 19th century, which inspired all the great composers of the early, early 20th century, was produced by people who really worked, were working very hard, didn't have any leisure, but they did put their heart and their soul into their singing. But Roger, I, one, again, unfortunately, one place point where I think left and right can agree is that, uh, unfortunately for this meeting, I mean, is, is that um, what's important for a whole Marxist or socialist tradition about art is that it has no immediate, obvious, utilitarian function. Mm. Yes? Um, it doesn't get you anywhere. Yes, it wasn't Marx purely, who first pure, said that, of course. No. It wasn't, no, indeed, indeed it wasn't, but Marx was a closet Aristotelian, mm. you know, and he goes, you know, there's certain connections there. Um, Marx um, loved art and literature and culture exactly because just by virtue of the kinds of useless things they were, mm. gloriously pointless things they were, they formed a kind of living refutation now, now, or critique yeah, this... of a society in which everything is dominated by exchange value, instrumental rationality mm. and so on. The point, the difference between... I'm, I'm sure much of that you would accept, Roger, mm. you too. Yeah, definitely. But the difference is that Marx raises that. He says, how do we then bring about a society, you know, in which it would be possible, in which human energies as far as possible, could be expressed as ends in themselves and not be instrumentalised. You may not agree with his answer. My point is, you have to raise the political question for that vision mm. to become viable. I, I, I'm not sure that, in the broad sense of political, that is, there is a political question, of course. What kind of, in what kind of society do people understand their own lives and each other as ends in themselves and not as means to something, uh, some endless f- system of production. That is, that's much older than Marx. I mean, that goes back to the Old Testament, of course, that, uh, that thought. Uh, and in a broad sense, it's political. But uh, there is then the question of how you secure, uh, when this has fallen apart, when people have, have uh, 
adopted to everything an instrumental attitude how do you then work, find your way back uh, you know romantic conservatives like burke were among the first to to raise this question and they came the, the answer that he, that burke gave is one which i think is still important namely that this cannot be done from the top by political imposition or by or by any revolutionary program which simply forces humanity into an abstract geometry which it can't mm -hmm. conform to. It has to be done from below through the association, the free association of individuals who come to respect each other through their shared activities. And that's where art perhaps uh, can do something. But of course, Burke also thought that religion had to be there too. There are, I think there are four... There are, there are, there's, a, there's a tiny, rare class of things that are, so to speak, autotelic, that have their ends in themselves, yes? That, or, or to put it, you know, that exist just for the hell of it, to use a technical theological term, yeah? just for their own self-delight. First is, of course, the, I mean, the greatest of all those is God. You know, God is purely an end in himself. He has his reasons, grounds, ends, motives, etc. himself. Second is a certain view of art, which is always in danger of being hubristic in that respect, of taking the place of God, a certain romantic view of art for which the whole point of art is that it's gloriously pointless. Thirdly is actually, I think, evil, because I think, um, and there's a remarkably cheap and extraordinary attractive book, um, <laughs> mm. and you know who the author is, um, on this, which argues that the strange thing about evil, it seems to be wickedness done just for the hell of it. That's why it's so mysterious. And third and fourthly, and this brings us to our debate, human beings, as they might be, under transformed political conditions, as far as possible. And I think there is a radical romantic tradition in which Marx is very key, but he's by no means the only one, which tries to bring these insights to bear on politics. And that's certainly a major mm. reason why I'm a Marxist. Yes. Um, all I would say in response to that is that attempts to realise that the programme have uh, always led to a worse situation than the one that needed to be remedied. Uh, and secondly, that, that this may be because it's not that human beings are created by political conditions, but that political conditions are created by human beings and that we ought to be a bit more attentive to the, those basic truths about human nature. That, uh, that, that seem to get dropped from the Marxist worldview. Well, I've, I've always been a great defender of the idea that Marx believed in a human nature, and he was quite right to do so. He actually called it species being, which is a kind of, if you like, a materialist version of human nature. But Marx, I think, would have, would, would, would have rejected that kind of purely pragmatic or instrumental but this is why he thought that in the end there wasn't going to be a, a political program was not going to sort things out. It would be the natural evolution of the well, of human if, society. I, maybe we're getting into a little technical here, but if Marx had believed that, it's strange why he was so concerned with political struggle. Mm. You know, why I did know. he just lie I know. Back He was and... confused, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, you think we should? We, yes. Should we yeah. have some questions yeah. now from the audience. <laughs> uh, there are ushers with mics. Um, please wait for the mics to come to you. And if you're in the gallery, there's a microphone up there. Um, so, first of all, we'll take a question from the gentleman there, and then the, the young man there. Yeah. It, it seems to me that in matters of economics, it makes a lot of sense to be a Marxist, a revolutionary. 
uh, in matters of politics, maybe a liberal, maybe a, a J.S. Mill liberal rather than a Nick Clegg liberal, but nonetheless uh, a liberal. But when it comes to culture, is it not necessarily um, demanding of a conservative attitude? Because there is a store of accumulated wisdom uh, and products, some of them uh, much more timeless than others, that it seems to me it behoves us to look after, maybe establish, defend and clarify mm. those values, but not to undermine them, and that the fundamental attitude towards culture, the cultural sphere, has to be conservative, especially in the context of a university. Um, uh, there are, of course, people who are creating new cultural products who fight to get in uh, to that great tradition, uh, and so they should, um, uh, and we can evaluate their success in doing so. But the job of a university, educating young people, I think must necessarily, should it not have a conservative attitude to culture. Well, it, it, it's, I'm sorry, but it's almost as though you didn't hear my first response to Roger, yeah, uh, where I said I certainly agree that culture is a form of wisdom, or can be, and it's not a form of wisdom you can teach scientifically. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's timeless. That doesn't mean it's non-historical. That doesn't mean it's non-contextual. And that doesn't mean that all traditions are, as it were, pickled in amber, and all we do is faithfully and rather passively transmit them. There is a conservative understanding of tradition. But my point against Roger was there's also a radical understanding of tradition. When Trotsky says, we Marxists always live in tradition, he's not speaking conservatively because he has a different conception of tradition as something which is constantly remade, which constantly tries to open itself to the participation of more and more people, and so on, which looks different in the light of different circumstances. So I would reject the idea that culture and education are somehow ipso facto conservative. If by conservative you mean they pass something on, sure, of course they do. But what leftist is going to disagree well, with that? Uh, uh, in support of the um, question, or rather the statement, I, I would say there is a work of conservation which you mustn't overlook. But even if you're on the left, there are things that don't make sense if you haven't got the, that complete historical context. And it's, it's possible to lose cultural knowledge much more easily than it is to gain it. I think, uh, you know, this is one of the important things that has been happening in our time. Uh, you know, loss of, of, of knowledge is not an easy thing to, to, to describe, but it, it does happen. Yeah. Well, Unlike the, the, in the sciences, you can put the knowledge in a book and someone will come and refer to it later and recapture it. But um, to recapture, uh, for instance, uh, the, the, the emotional content of the Shakespeare plays when the, when the but, traditional well, yeah, performance you know, is lost... Yes. Well, let me say for a third time, I agree with conserving knowledge. But mm. I don't think that's the only function yeah. of education by any means. And I think there are legitimate arguments about what you mean by conservation. Because just as the left quite properly shouldn't forget about that function, the right shouldn't insist that, shouldn't see conservation in a static and authoritarian mm. way, as it's so often done. The right, the right has so often said, here are the timeless cultural values, you know, um, take them or not, right? Uh, and that autocratic attitude has been quite as damaging uh, 
to education and culture, in my view, as those on the left who have ignored the conservatory yes, aspect. Exactly. When you mention Shakespeare, Roger, I mean, I've spent all my life as a leftist writing on and teaching Shakespeare. So have many other people on the left. It's just that we don't, you know, I mean, we see Shakespeare as a rather more living and changing reality than a museum piece, which mm. is the way some conservationist theorists see him. Yes, but um, I do, you should notice the extent to which you keep referring to yourself as on the left, as part of a group, something which has, as it were, defined the issue for, for its own purposes. Um, and you you saying that the people on the right insist on this and insist on this, but you know people on the right don't insist very much at all. And hardly ever identify themselves with that word. And you you know we we don't belong to a group. We're not trying to take things over. We're just holding on to what we love. Well, this thing called the Salisbury Review that you used to be. <laughs> yes, so it has a readership yeah. of about a thousand people. Yeah. Uh, um, the same as socialist worker. Actually. Next, next question. The essence of my idea is that it's time to open up the ivory tower. Six years ago, there were bombs in London, in the buses and the underground. And why is it that eminent people, eminent writers like yourselves, uh, I might have not read everything you've written, but why is it that you can't address issues like, um, for instance, in France and Germany, it's not allowed to uh, be disparaging about the Holocaust history, but it's allowed to uh, print uh, cartoons uh, against Islam because there's no particular context, there's no particular history behind or any reasons why we shouldn't not print cartoons against Islam. But the, the, that, this is leading to the question, is it possible for people like you to talk to religious fundamentalists that end up bombing our cities and don't have any means to interpret a very uh, abstract idea of listening to Wagner or reading Shakespeare. That they, They're not a part of our universe, but they do place bombs in our cities and they have a view of the world which is completely commensurable with our view of the world. Is there anything we can say to them? First of all, I... I'm, I'm very, you, talk about, you began by talking about the ivory tower, right? I'm very suspicious of that phrase. Not, not only because today that's the last thing universities are, you know, transnational corporations may be, but, you know, ivory towers. And I haven't been for a very long time, nor has culture been part of an ivory tower, sequestered from reality for a very long time. If, really, if ever, in a sense. I think that's a misleading metaphor. All I would say about the... Well, let me say two things about the, the point about fundamentalism. One, of course, is that that's a form of culture. That fits into what I was saying about culture nowadays is something you will kill for. Some, for some people, culture is something you will kill for. It's, it's not simply Balzac and Beethoven. And if you confine your view of culture to a largely aesthetic one, you're not going to be able to understand and engage with that lethal situation right second thing i just want to say very quickly is this um when when prospero turns to caliban at the end of the tempest and says this thing of darkness i acknowledge mine he's making a very old uh, if you like partly religious partly ritual gesture of accepting um the dark and misshapen and monstrous thing that hovers terroristically at your gate as part of your own responsibility, the Oedipus standing at Colonus, blind, broken, 
beggarly, monstrous, and that is taken in. I'm not saying that we should take terrorists in. I'm saying this, that we must... Not the West can't do anything about this problem. It may well be too late to do anything about it anyway. Let's be realistic, you know. It may be too late for justice. There was no doubt a time when justice properly dispensed might have prevented that terrorism. It may be too late now. But even so... What happened, uh, it's a long story, and I'm sorry, I don't want to bore anybody and I can't tell all of it. What happened in the mid-decades of the 20th century, in my view, was that the West, for its own purposes, systematically rolled back and crushed leftist, nationalist, left nationalist and revolutionary forces in the Arab world, including a massacre of some half million communists in Indonesia, CIA-backed, Okay, and created a vacuum into which the ugly language of Islamism could then move. Yeah. It was judged by the Middle East, it was judged by Muslims and Arabs in many places, quite understandably, that the left had been a failure. Yeah. It hadn't defended them against the imperialist depredations oh, of the I right. I say, this is and, all a caricature uh, of against, against the right. You, you can come in in a moment, Roger. Yeah. I've got about well, enough, I don't think there will be a moment I, I, if this goes I've on. I've got another centre, right? <laughs> yeah. And, but you see, you see, how often is this said? How often is this said? Uh, you, you know, uh, let, let me give me my little moment on my little soapbox, yes? Because you won't hear it on Sky News. You won't hear it from him. You won't hear it from the BBC. You won't hear a history of that of, of that situation in which a political vacuum was created, into which those forces were able to move. Supported in Afghanistan. Islamic fundamentalism supported by the United States. How often is that said? Well, um, just uh, a small point going back to the question. Uh, what is it that we in universities should be doing to confront this sort of thing? Um, I think it's quite important to recognise the, the nature of the Enlightenment the way in which it did transform our way of teaching culture to, to people in our civilization, uh, And it's appropriate to lament the fact that that enlightenment has not in any way taken root in the Islamic world. And I think it is quite important uh, to, you know, to compare the, uh, the, the history of those great universities in the time that since the Enlightenment in, in, in Europe, what exactly happened to the Arab universities and why was it that they didn't take on this critical attitude towards their own religion and the, the attempt to put it into context that, that we in the Christian world did. And I think, you know, you, you're right that lots of things have been done wrong by the Western powers, but it wasn't the Western powers that, that invented uh, al-Wahhab, you know, or sent him off to, to, to Saudi Arabia to do what he did. Uh, and, uh, and it was his, his stirring up of all that uh, which, uh, which has led to so much of what is being said today. Simply the Western powers back Saudi Arabia today. Now, of course, I, I, uh, I see no incompatibility between what I just said, Roger, and your very correct defence of the Enlightenment. I take what I said to be part of the Enlightenment. Right. That's to say that unless that it's a, it's a staple of Enlightenment, of Western Enlightenment, that unless you try to understand the historical context, the political context, all the things that your version of culture has been rejecting this evening, 
you won't win. You won't, you know, I mean, you have to understand what you're up against. And you have to employ an Enlightenment rationality to understand that. And, and I certainly agree with your point. We have to understand the decline of that great tradition of Arab culture and learning. But what I began the evening by saying also was something about the decline of the great Western tradition. I think that we're less and less in a position where we can, as it were, look disdainfully on that when we have moved ourselves from the great medieval institutions of Paris or Bologna or Oxford... Well, this to, is where we need ivory towers, to, isn't it? ...to knowledge factories. And if the only alternatives we have are knowledge factory or ivory tower, we're finished. I wanted to ask about um, one of the things that has uh, come up frequently in your uh, discussion today, you know, the idea of belonging. But where there's belonging, there is exclusion. And, the, you know, when we say that high culture or good culture, valuable culture, allows us to get to know ourselves in our, our surroundings, people around us, we may run the risk of implying that there is a universal human self that we can all discover through culture. And, and I'm, I ask this because one of the things that has been conspicuously absent this evening is the mention of non-Western cultures. And what happens... So the question is, really, what happens when there is a clash of high cultures, of different worlds? And I think this is where, Terry, your point is extremely valid about the, the political power structures that, that cultures are mired in. And, and colonialism is a very good example of that. So, you know, the, the debate between high culture, low culture, valuable culture, invaluable culture mm. might be easier if you're talking about Shakespeare and Justin Bieber. But if you're talking about Hindustani Carnatic music or Shakespeare, then the debate is, is much more complicated. And this is precisely where the politics of the world comes into play because it's not one seriously good culture rubbishing the other. It is one very good culture rubbishing a very good culture. Um, I would like to say something in response to this, because I think it is a very important uh, issue, uh, which is, um, bears on what we mean by culture when we discuss it in the way that we've been discussing it. Um, it looking at the case of India, which is obviously in the back of your mind, you, know, they, you have to think of what happened when um, uh, the... Uh, Asiatic Society of Bengal was founded in something like 1785. Uh, that was founded by the first sort of group of, uh, of British civil servants wor working for the East India Company who were really amazed by what they found around themselves uh, and wanted to learn it. You know, they, they, they came with their enlightenment attitudes that, that, that this is culture too uh, and did a lot to save the, the, the Sanskrit texts uh, and Sir William Jones uh, in particular um, did his own bit to save the tradition of Indian classical music which was being lost at the time. Uh, and this kind of, uh, you know, universal education that people had then enabled them to see India, at least that class of people, to see India as another high culture which they had to uh, not only respect but try and immortalise, you know, get, get it into print even, where it hadn't been in print before. Uh, and more recent scholars have always looked back on colonialism as some, some kind of threat some kind of way of oppressing or wiping out the native culture. And it's just, just not true in the case of the, of the British in India because of that Enlightenment view of, of culture as a universal thing. But it's, 
Uh, you're not going to agree, but I'm, I'm telling you this, uh, nevertheless. <laughs> One of the things that the British media also did, for example, was to, uh, you know, forbid... Um... Sooty, yeah, of course they stopped you burning widows and so on, I agree. Sorry, it's not a forbid. She wasn't burning widows. <laughs> oh, carry on. Yeah, that's a valid point. But no, I mean, uh, you know, we can go on and on about the history of the British Empire and... and and believe you me that there will be more examples of, of uh, the Enlightenment culture being lost on uh, a great many number of civil mm. servants in British India. So I, I wouldn't go that far. But, uh, but I think one of the important questions that um, you know, I would like um, you know, to hear your thoughts on is, is what do we do about the political establishment today in a globalized world which seems to be democratic in, in its embrace of plurality and multiculturalism and so on and so forth. But there is still a hierarchy. And, mm. and, and how do we square that circle now? We still live in, in a divided and hegemonic world in some ways. I think this is uh, Terry's question because he has solutions to these problems uh, and he, he knows exactly who should be taken where away is, and put where. Where is, there something <laughs> um, where is there something superior in not having solutions? No, no, area? I think that there are, um, I think some problems the, uh, are unsol the, insoluble. Uh, um, it is, um, Roger's example is outrageously tendentious. Mm. It's not untrue of the Bengali, it's just outrageously tendentious. If in, implicitly you're using that as a paradigm of the relation between Western and colonised cultures, the fact is that um, not only did the West destroy local cultures in colonialism, as Roger knows full well, but one reason, one very important historical function of so-called Western high culture that Roger defends is that it was a way in which you could, as it were, package your values very conveniently and show them to the natives, yes, and impress them. It, it, culture travelled. Literature, the arts, particularly writing, was a way in which, as it were, you could encapsulate those values and use them in colonial situations. So much so that, you know, as I was saying before, there's no correlation between high and popular culture and good and bad culture or left and right culture. Equally, your point is there, are, there is high culture all over the place. Just as you know, the media are all over the place, so is so-called high culture. But it's been part of the arrogance of a certain Western cultural imperialism that high, high culture itself is identified with the West. Yes. Uh, actually, I don't agree with that at all. If, uh, if you look at what happened to Western high culture under the influence of the East, OK, you're going to say that something like Rudyard Kipling's, Kipling's Kim is, is simply Western high culture taken into India. I don't think it's true at all. It was an attempt, actually, to, to, to bring to life that extraordinary society and extraordinary uh, mixture of... Uh, of uh, uh, of cultures that that surrounded him, think of you know think of things like Puccini's Madama Butterfly, or um, or, or Benjamin Britten's Prince of the Pagodas, or Curly River. You know the way in which uh, uh, throughout our in, the, in, the the impact of the uh, of the Eastern cultures in the 20th century, artists and writers and uh, and composers have tried to absorb it. 
and, uh, and create gestures of respect which show that, that, that they have at least tried to understand that there is something there which is a difference and not just a, a, an assimilation. On that note, I think we're going to have to end. We've run out of time. Um, Terry and Roger will be signing books out on the landing, uh, but please show your appreciation with a very large round of applause. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. (laughs) 